You are listening to Sonic Entanglements. Welcome to Sonic Entanglements, a podcast about sound history in Southeast Asia. My name is Mele Yamomo, and in this series, I will speak with historians, musicologists, media scholars, and sound archivists. Today, I am with a friend and colleague at the University of Amsterdam. Welcome, Vincent. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, uh, my name is Vincent Kuitenbrouwer, and I am a senior lecturer at the history department at the University of Amsterdam, and I'm connected to the chair of modern history, and I'm specialized in the history of international relations. I know you from our shared research interest in radio history, but I realize that I do not know your previous research and how you ended up in this topic. Right. Um, My um, PhD was on the pro-Boer movement in the Netherlands, which was a propaganda movement uh, to support the the Boers in South Africa, which are also known as Afrikaners, uh, a group of white uh, people who fought against the British Empire around 1900. And in that age, there was no radio, uh, but there was telegraphy, there were newspapers, there were pamphlets. And so I was looking at the transfer of information between South Africa and the Netherlands and the way this information was turned into uh, um, in all sorts of publications. So that got me interested in international communication lines and international networks of communication. Um, but then I saw the word radio popping up all the time. Um, so radio, 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 radio. And it got me wondering about, you know, what's happening with radio? And I found out that in, in the 1920s, radio was used as an international uh, communication tool for the first time. And I got interested in it. And I wanted to read more about it. Uh, so I started to look for publications and I couldn't find any. Um, so I decided to write those publications myself. So that's how I became a historian of radio. Do you specialize in a particular geographic region and time period? I'm mainly interested in Dutch uh, international communication networks, which means for the 1920s and 30s that I focus on Dutch connections or connections from the Netherlands with the former colonies. So that means um, Southeast Asia, colonial Indonesia, uh, and also the Caribbean, uh, where Suriname and the Antilles were uh, Dutch colonies at the time. And there's also a special link still going on in the time between the Netherlands and South Africa. Although South Africa had become a part of the British Empire at the time, uh, there was still much feelings of connections with the Afrikaners or the Boers, how you want to call them, uh, in South Africa from the Netherlands because they shared, uh, to some extent, uh, a cultural and, and historical heritage. So mm-hmm. I think those three parts of the world are mainly uh, at the moment in, in my research uh, present. And this is your new project? Yeah, so it's it's international radio broadcasting of the Netherlands with a special attention to colonial connections. And I'm now really trying to move into the era of decolonization and hopefully at one time at the post-colonial age mm-hmm. or what came after decolonization. Yeah, so that's the ambition at least. As a radio historian, what kind of materials do you work with? Well, I'm a very traditional historian, so um, I mainly work with um, paper archives uh, or digitalized versions of paper archives. 
uh, and paper sources. Sometimes these are individual pieces like letters and memos that, that you know, unique uh, uh, texts. But I also interested, of course, in, in more serialized publications, radio guides, newspapers. Uh, they, I mentioned uh, radio broadcasting a lot, books of these insider histories, but also uh, of people reflecting on the medium. So it's um, in that sense, I, I do a lot with, with paper archives. But I'm also starting to get interested in what, what sounds from, from history and, and sounds from radio are actually left to us in, in the form of recordings. So I'm uh, also starting to tap into the audiovisual archive as well. I remember bumping into you in one of the offices of the Netherlands Institute for Sound and Vision, the biggest audiovisual archive of the country. What were you doing there? Um, I, I had a fellowship at Sound and Vision uh, in Hilversum and uh, to contribute to a book about 100 years of radio, which was celebrated in November 2019. And that chapter was about international broadcasting. And uh, for that chapter, I looked at one specific institution, uh, which is called uh, Radio Nederland Wereldomroep, Radio Netherlands Worldwide. And Sound and Vision has acquired quite a lot of collections of that uh, station, which is uh, which was abolished in 2012. So the the archives were taken over by Beeld en Geluid and or Sound and Vision, and they are still in the process of making them available. But I I've looked at mainly at uh, annual reports, uh, and also could have access to their sound collection. The only thing is that that sound collection still consists of separate files, so it was a bit difficult to find your way in there. But I found some stuff. Mm -hmm. So in your experience. What does the engagement of sound as archive opens up in our understanding of history? I think you can approach this question from several ways. And maybe it's good to say something first about the way you go about and finding these things. Uh, and, and then you're first, uh, when you want to search for sounds in a big collection, you have to really, you're dependent on metadata. So you have to find certain keywords and certain topics that you're interested in and then uh, approach it like that. Um, and in that sense, it's, you know, requires really thinking about you know, how an archive works. And, and that I think is very difficult when you do a sound archive, because when you have like a paper archive, you can just browse through the papers and then, you know, see if it's interesting or not. With sound, you really have to listen to it and, and really have to be tedious and, and wait for the right moment until you know if this is going to work or not. So the first way of selecting in the selection process is look at metadata and then go and find something in the recording itself. So that for me, it's, uh, that brings a lot of, you know, you have to go a, a step down in the pace. You slow down, you think, and you think more strategically and more pointed. You just, you're not going to do, go through bulk, but you try to really find some fragments that, that can help. So that is for me, it's interesting because you really think about strategies and, and how to find things. So that, that's the first step. And then what sound actually learns from the past for me, as an historian, really um, focused on, on the visual, on reading texts, on looking at things, it is very interesting to, to use a different sense, uh, to, to really use the ear instead of only the eye. And in that sense, I sometimes, you know, the vibrations of the sound of the past, they, they can really hit something emotionally. So I guess what you call sonos, uh, the reverberation and the, and the interpretation of, of those vibrating vibrating bits of air can really help to um, to make a connection and feel a connection with a, sp a specific topic. So that for me at the moment, I think when I find a good fragment, 
really learns me something about the connection with the specific topic in the past. Uh, you can feel it instead of only think about it and rationalize about it when you just see it. Vincent, you mentioned the term Sonos, and I think I need to jump in here for a moment to explain this idea for our listeners. You and I have spoken about this in our recent symposium, and we are thinking about its different application in analyzing colonial history. So, Sonus is a concept that I develop in my book, Sounding Modernities. Sonus refers to the understandings, emotions, or ideas that transpire between a listener and the sound that they are listening to. In my book, I use the example of a national anthem. When we play the U.S. national anthem, it produces a different meaning, a different sonus to an American listening compared to a Mexican or a Russian. The sonus can be evoked by a musical composition or by the particularity of a sound. The words, I love you, are just words until they are spoken through the sound of a person's voice saying those words to a lover. It is in this case that the specificity of the speaker's voice is what gives it its particular meaning to the listener. There will be a particular episode lined up where I will discuss this topic, so please watch out for that. Going back to our conversation, what is also interesting about researching radio is that radio was the first wireless technology and you can connect with wherever you are in the world. Yeah, so it's that's the great thing about radio. It doesn't know borders. So radio waves are transnational per definition. So even if, if you have a national broadcast, uh, usually it can be picked up in other countries as well. Um, well, and then, uh, so this is a given, uh, you know, that's the connection. But there, of course, are all sorts of restrictions. Uh, first of all, language. I mean, uh, if you have a Dutch broadcast for people in the Netherlands, people in Germany uh, can't understand it. So that is one limitation. But also the limitation, is, of course, is the institution that's behind it. Mm-hmm. So you really have to be careful to think about that. Because when you look at Dutch international broadcasting in the 1920s, 30s, those were white people broadcasting and there was no attention for people from other ethnicities. Mm-hmm. So that, that is a really a restriction that you have to take into account. And at that time, radio and these connections were used to bolster colonial ties. I mean, that was the, the main idea of, of setting up an organization like that. So, and then you get the silence. There's a lot you don't hear. And that's the difficulty for me as an historian. You know, I'm always looking for positive things in the archives. So I'm looking for sentences and quotes and that's sort of things. But especially in the sound archive, uh, you also have to, to look for the silences or at least think about them and take them into account. Again, to critically analyze the institutions and the archives you're working with. How does the sense of hearing and listening affect or influence your work as a colonial historian? Well, now you touch on a very difficult topic. For me, as a, a, as a white person coming from the Netherlands, it is like I'm connecting mainly with, uh, or listening mainly to broadcasts by whites, Dutch people with an affiliation and support for colonialism. Dames and heren, ik sta hier op tolkenblik op het huis van Pik en Kloppenburg. De damterrein ligt voor me. De mensen zijn allemaal in spanning wat er gebeuren gaat. U weet het natuurlijk. We geven nog de reputatie van haar majesteit de koningin en van de verder familie aan het paleis te Dam. Uh, up until now, that's, that's mainly what I'm, I'm, I've been listening to. So, that sense of connection, bringing myself closer to, to them, it is interesting, but it's also troubling in a sense, because it also confronts me with the colonial past of the Netherlands. And so sometimes that feeling of connection can be very uncomfortable. 
uh, for me as somebody born and raised in a period after decolonization, um, uh, also raised with uh, notions of equality. But, you know, um, sometimes you, you do find very common things in these recordings, as you also do in, in written sources, by the way, but uh, very uh, things that are very recognizable still. And that connection can be very interesting, can, can uh, lead to interesting reactions, but you also have to critically reflect on it, what it actually means. Maybe that's one of the reasons I'm not ready yet for to write about it because I'm I'm not I haven't finished that that that, that process yet. I'm not sure what it what it means uh, uh, now, but maybe maybe you can talk about or, or think about ways of critically approaching it, um, and then using these these sound bits to get a better understanding of how colonial inequality works. So it's not only making connection with that history, but also trying to connect to certain power hierarchies that were present uh, and, and try to uh, uh, to better understand them and critically reflect on them. And I have one example, which springs into mind. I was listening to broadcasts made from the Netherlands to Indonesia during the time of the war of decolonization between 1945 and 1950. So the Indonesian nationalists had declared independence and, they, uh, and the Dutch government didn't accept that. So there was a war. And um, a lot of Dutch conscripts were sent to Indonesia to fight. And to keep up morale, you had special programs made in the Netherlands for the soldiers uh, fighting abroad. So there was a lot of, you know, generals saying they did a good job. Uh, there was uh, some sort of a cabaret show. There was music played. And there were also people, uh, family members who were gathered in, in uh, certain locations. And they were allowed to say greetings. So they said like, you know, Hi, this is Auntie Ladla, and I would like to say hi to uh, uh, such and such and so and so. Hallo, Sim. Het ogenblik is trouwens aangebroken dat de stem van je vader en moeder zal worden vastgelegd om die naar jou te doen reizen. Herken jij die stemmen nog? Het is bijna 16 maanden geleden dat jij die voor het laatst hoorde, hè? And I've listened to some of these recordings of these these greeting programs. There were raw recordings, and they had to be edited. And at one point, you had a woman who started talking, a mother of a grenadier or something, and she started crying uh, in the middle of the sentence. Dag, lieve Piet. Hier, alles goed. Bij jou hopelijk ook. Heb je nu brief ontvangen? Ik schrijf geregeld. Nee. The uh, presenter, he intervened. Nee. Stop er even, Henk. Dat hoort er niet bij, Henk. We gaan draaien over vijf seconden van nu. Said like, no, no, stop the tape. We can't use this. And then you get like a small break and then the woman uh, says a, a shortened sentence and she keeps it dry and, and I guess that was broadcasted. Well, what we see here is a clear illustration of the purpose of this, this broadcast. These broadcasts were made to make soldiers feel connected to home, but they weren't allowed to feel homesick. So emotions were, and crying and, and that sort of things were cut out literally mm -hmm. uh, because, because that could undermine morale. But what really struck me is this authoritative way of intervening by the presenter who, you know, who cut down, cut short of, of a relative and, and then said, like, you have to do it differently because this doesn't fit the format. Um, and, and that thing that probably wasn't broadcasted anyway, really gave me an insight in how these colonial broadcasting uh, things were scripted. So they, they really give me an insight in, in, in the scripts. And actually um, in the paper archive, you have a lot of scripts mainly these greetings weren't spontaneously they were written down and then read out so they were prepared so a lot of these emotions that you feel when you listen to this well you can 
on the one hand, you know, you get a real touch with, with the time, and but but there aren't spontaneous, there aren't true emotions that actually were scripted. Um, and, and by, you know, listening to that and critically analyzing it, you can really get the gist of and the meaning of these sounds. Uh, uh, and then also when you feel connected to these people who were saying greetings, which is always very endearing, you can think about like, hey, hang on, are these are genuine uh, things or maybe this is also a part of a wider system of managing and controlling people. And you also wrote about FOHI, the commercial Dutch radio broadcasting from Eindhoven to the Dutch East Indies, or the present-day Indonesia. Yes, it was a station that came from the company Philips, and um, this was meant for colonial expats, so people who came from the Netherlands to Indonesia to stay there. And Philips and other colonial companies wanted to keep those people connected to the Netherlands so that they you know, could cope with the, the say it's a, the homestead. Home so what I did is try to capture as many typical, inverted commas, Dutch sounds to generate these feelings of connectedness. And one way was, of course, the typically Dutch sound, which you hear in every Dutch city uh, of, of the bells of, of a, a tower ringing, the so-called carillon. Hello, dames and heren. Here is Holland, the Fogi. Philips Amroep Holland Indië op een halflengte van 25,57 meter. Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is station PHI of Philips Broadcasting Holland India. Our wavelength is 25.57 meters. Uh, and, and they had specific concerts played and they aired these, these concerts to make people feel connected to home again. What was the reception of the listener? Do we know this? Yes, definitely. So people wrote letters to, to Philips to thank them for these broadcasts and to applaud them or comment on if they missed something. But you know, there was, there was a lot of appreciation for this type of typical Dutch broadcast. And another thing that really was popular was the weather broadcast. You get all these letters from people living on tropical circumstances and say like, oh God, we hear this broadcast about a November storm. and. Yeah, we, we, we really said like, oh, it's so nice to have like a November storm again with rain and wind and, and freezing cold. That really was a way for them to imagine that they were home. What I found most fascinating in the recent article that you wrote about Dutch radio in colonial Indonesia is how you argued that colonialism is a faulty project, that as an experiment, sometimes it does not work. And you made this argument through sound and radio. Could you elaborate on this? So we're now switching from international broadcasting to a more, maybe the best word is regional broadcasting. So we're talking about a broadcasting system that was present in colonial Indonesia, uh, which at the time you, you could see it as a country, but maybe it's better to see it as a region because it's so varied and so uh, wide ranging. And this particular broadcasting system was called the, the NIROM, uh, N-I-R-O-M, and it was a broadcasting corporation that was meant for regional broadcasts, for people in Indonesia, from people in Indonesia. And at, at the onset, people who were organizing this, this organization had a very colonial idea, as was very uh, common at the time, to make this a white medium, uh, so for white people only, because the, the idea was that only white European people could be interested in radio because they had the money uh, to buy radio sets 
and also because it was a sign of civilization, and I'm, I'm using inverted commas here, uh, to, to, uh, to be interested in that and to be modern. Again, inverted commas. That was the, the initial idea uh, behind this, a very colonial way of approaching radio. But in that region, specific uh, dynamics happened. Uh, there was a lot of problems with the actual laws and, and the regulations uh, around this station. I won't tell too much about it, but there was a great delay in making this station uh, operational. The idea originated in the late 1920s, but Neurom only started broadcasting in 1934 because of these, these delays in, in leg legislation. But in that time between, uh, it became apparent that not only white Europeans were interested in radio, but uh, a lot of Indonesian groups as well. And so you got all sorts of amateur groups popping up in various cities, on Java mainly. So there was this, this stall in, in, in legislation. During that lull uh, and that, that interval, the main idea behind this colonial radio broadcasting system was challenged, namely that only white Europeans were interested in, in radio. And what you see at that time is the emergence of all sorts of amateur groups and corporations on, in Javanese cities in which Indonesians participated. And, you know, Indonesians from various backgrounds. So you had like Eurasian groups uh, who were interested, more traditional Javanese people who felt more connected to uh, certain Javanese traditions got interested. There were Chinese people from Chinese descent who were interested in radio. So you shouldn't label the Indonesians as one, but you have all these different groups and they all developed their own specific tastes for music, or at least it was perceived that they had specific tastes for music. And so they become active and they, they started to change the programming of their local radio broadcasts. And in the end, this type of broadcasting actually became quite important for Neurom as well, because in the end, the law that was passed stipulated that people who owned radios had to pay license fees, and therefore they also had a say in the programming. And so where at first the idea was that only Europeans would you know, subscribe to this sort of stuff, actually quite a lot of Indonesians uh, and non-Western people uh, subscribed to or had radio license fees or paid it. So they got a say in the programming. So this meant that the Neurom management had to accommodate that. And so they developed what they called the Western program, which was meant for uh, white Europeans. And then they had a separate Eastern program for the other groups, uh, which they labeled as Eastern. And the idea was that the twain would never meet. So on paper, this is a very neatly still segregated colonial system that you have. But of course, I think uh, when you look at the, the notes of advisory board meetings that I found, uh, you can see that in practice, the separation between swears didn't work at all. So you have all sorts of indications that, especially um, uh, people who are categorized as Eastern, tuned into Western programs as well and, and, and really switched between the, two, uh, between the two stations in a sense. And in this context, uh, we can see an emergence of mixed form of music called Kronchong, which is music that is played on Western instruments, uh, but often with uh, Malay language text. So you really get this this mixed mixed uh, uh, music style emerging, and you know the people at the radio don't know what to do with it, and and they they uh, uh, allow it and they categorize it as Eastern, and and in this sense, uh, Kronchong emerges as a very popular uh, style of music in Indonesia, 
and actually um, uh, it becomes adopted by the Indonesian nationalist uh, groups who, who see it as a marker of national identity. So you can see here in the bosom of a colonial institute, uh, we can see the development of an of a anti-colonial style of music sense or vocabulary if you want to in that sense the colonial control over these processes isn't absolute it has blind spots uh, and in these blind spots a uh, very interesting thing happened. you also wrote about how the dutch colonial imagination of the east and the west failed in the radio project in colonial indonesia yeah there's this this is one scene where you have literally a complaint coming in to this, this advisory board I've been looking at. And it's uh, a complaint from people who tuned into the Western program because uh, they were playing gramophone records, but through the walls of the studio, they hear gamelan interfering. So on the background, you have this the Eastern, inverted commas, Gamelan, uh, who's interfering with the Western, inverted commas, program. So uh, again, this, this shows that sound is, is literally going through walls and, and that these categories uh, are very uh, flexible. And you can connect that to a concept that was developed by Indonesian novel writer Pramuja Ananta Tour, who developed the idea of the colonial archive as a glass house. It's an image of, he's describing a police officer who's, who's watching a, an Indonesian nationalist and on his desk there are all sorts of documents and in these documents he can also see these nationalists move. So it's, it's like a glass house on his desk. So at, at one point, and, and you can see this as a powerful metaphor for control of the colonial state and serviability, and Benedict Anderson um, has uh, commented on that in uh, Imagined Communities. But Benedict Anderson also has commented in a, in a later publication, and he points out there's a twist to the story. So this police officer that's watching the Indonesian nationalist, he's actually quite impressed with these Indonesian nationalists. And, and he gives the impression that he tampered with the documents to actually make his own story. So what we see here is a really strange twist you just read. And this is like the end of a tetralogy. So it's four books. And then at the end, you realize that everything you read might have been tampered with by the colonial uh, officer. Um, so everything you read actually might be a colonial fantasy. So this twist is really interesting to, to invite us to think about, of course, the glass house, this colonial archive. It's, of course, uh, an attempt to control everything. But is it really the case? Aren't there like all sorts of dynamics going on in the colonial mind uh, that offer uh, opportunities for anti-colonial activists to actually prosper? That is a beautiful image to end this conversation with. Thank you very much, Vincent, for taking your time to share with us your research project. Yeah. I'm sure we will continue this conversation beyond this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sonic Entanglements podcast. I am your host and producer, Mille Yamomo. Thijs van der Geest is our sound engineer and sound editor. And Jean Versena is our publicity manager. Our theme music is created by Marcus Hogerforst. Special thanks to Eric Lukasen and the Netherlands Institute for Sound and Vision. This podcast is funded by the Dutch Research Organization. If you would like to listen to other episodes of this program, subscribe to Sonic Entanglements at Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more, you can head over to sonic-entanglements.com.